Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart, the most listened to internet radio show in the nonprofit sector, dedicated to helping your charity succeed. It's no secret that combining online and offline techniques is the key to modern-day fundraising success, and practical advice is what you need. The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart is the perfect landing point to learn from experts around the world who provide advice you can use. Ted Hart is without a doubt one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. Also a successful author, his books range from successful online fundraising to the use of social media and how to make your nonprofit green. Guests on The Nonprofit Coach are leaders in their field who share tips and trade secrets for nonprofit management and fundraising success. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. From the latest in charity news, technology, fundraising, and social networking, Ted and his guests help you and your organization move to greater levels of efficiency and fundraising success. This is a live call-in show. Add your voice by calling 347-324-3080. After the show, you can find all our podcasts at tedhart.com. Click on Radio. Don't forget to dial 347-324-3080. Now, welcome the host of The Nonprofit Coach, Ted Hart. And welcome here to the latest edition of The Nonprofit Coach. Thank you for joining us here for our weekly party uh, here at The Nonprofit Coach, everything philanthropy in the United States. Really big day today um, here at CAF America, where I serve as uh, CEO. Uh, that's CAFAmerica.org. Uh, today we released the World Giving Index, our fifth uh, World Giving Index, and you'll find over in the World Giving Index that uh, the United States uh, is number one uh, in uh, giving across the board in the three categories uh, that uh, that we uh, rake in the World Giving Index based on uh, the data from Gallup from 193 countries around the world. Uh, we are tied for first place with the country of Myanmar. Uh, and for some people that sounds a little bit odd. Uh, but when you read the report, which you can find over in the radio links today at tedhart.com, uh, you will find that the three measures are charitable giving, helping your neighbor, and volunteering. Uh, and in the country of Myanmar, there is a very strong uh, Buddhist majority uh, and very strong giving culture. Uh, and uh, certainly for uh, that country, it is not surprising to see them ranked so well in the World Giving Index. Uh, for the United States, this is the strongest uh, number one rating ever in the history of the report, which is now five years old. Uh, and uh, so I urge you to take a look at this report. Lots of data, uh, five-year cumulative information uh, about countries and how countries have been moving around in the World Giving Index. Uh, but I think it's fascinating. Uh, to see how uh, I think as Americans we uh, expect uh, that we would be number one. Uh, so for some of us that's not the story. Uh, but I think the story really is that the United States is not stagnant at number one. It's not slipping at number one, uh, but actually is increasing in its giving uh, leadership around the world. Uh, and in doing so, I think there is a story behind the story. And I think part of that personally for me uh, is the scars of the Great Recession are still working their way through this country. A lot of people are still hurting. And I think as Americans, we're a very giving society. We know that. We have uh, long, deep roots uh, in giving to uh, others and supporting charitable organizations. Uh, those of us in the philanthropic uh, industry benefit uh, from that for those that we serve. And uh, I think that when we see people hurting, uh, it is natural for Americans to reach out and lend a hand, to give of themselves, to see themselves as part of that solution. 
Uh, and that's the great work of philanthropy in the United States. But what I think is very powerful about the World Giving Index is it shows how what we would consider to be traditional American values uh, play out on a global stage around the world in a variety of different ways. Uh, and it's wonderful to see this report being so well received uh, already uh, today in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, San Francisco Chronicle, Chronicle of Philanthropy, and others have covered this uh, story. Uh, so we're very appreciative of that. And I urge all of my uh, listeners uh, today to uh, read the World Giving Index and become familiar uh, with the work of the World Giving Index. Next up here on uh, page one news, uh, just a reminder, as our announcer mentioned, this is a live call-in show. You can call in to 347-324-3080 when we get to our page two expert uh, today. You also can ask questions over in the chat room. I see some folks over in the chat room. Feel free to type your questions out there, uh, and I will share them on the air today. Uh, or you can email me your questions at tedhart at tedhart.com. Uh, next up here on uh, page one news uh, is uh, an article that I found quite interesting over in the Chronicle of Philanthropy. Uh, the new leader of the Gates Foundation, De uh, Susan Desmond Hellman, uh, made, a, a, I think, some very important remarks uh, at the uh, Independent Sector Conference, which opened on Sunday. Uh, and uh, in there, she urged grant makers to avoid the arrogance of power. Um, and certainly, the balance of power can be very difficult for a lot of charities. Uh, and when fundraising is not successful, when money does not come, uh, come in, that can often mean layoffs, closing of programs, uh, stopping things that donors are supporting from happening uh, because of the weight and the importance of uh, grant support. So I, I think it's, a, it's an important article. I think it's an important point of view uh, from uh, obviously a very important and influential funder uh, here in the United States and around the world, that being the Gates Foundation. So I urge you, again, over in the radio links, you will find the link uh, to those uh, statements uh, that are posted over at the Chronicle of Philanthropy. Uh, next up here on uh, the Nonprofit Coach, it's uh, uh, my pleasure to welcome our friends back uh, from uh, uh, CFRE. Uh, George Hamilton is here with us. And uh, George, you're here to bring us this month's CFRE Minute. Yeah, thank you very much, Ted, and I appreciate you having us yet again. Um, it's you know it's been a uh, a very exciting year, and we're coming to the end of a very exciting year here at CFRE International. Um, earlier this month, um, CFRE relaunched the latest evolution of our e-newsletter, um, the CFRE Leading Edge, um, and it is now a weekly e-newsletter um, combining news from CFRE International alongside of content gathered from around the web um, regarding fundraising, nonprofit leadership, um, and any you know, basically any areas of interest to to the certified fundraising um, professional marketplace. Um, it also it goes to um, all our current CFREs, and we also send it to anybody who has a recent application. So anyone who started a recent initial application is also receiving that newsletter. Um, but it is open and available for subscription to anyone. So if any of your listeners want, wanted to uh, subscribe to the Leading Edge and don't automatically receive it from us, um, they can do that, that through our website, um, cfre.org, under the resources column, um, and look for e-news archives. There's a, there's a link to subscribe there. Um, another exciting uh, thing to share um, is that the CFRE credential is growing. Um, Already this year, we've exceeded our goal for initial certification applications, um, and we are still going strong. They're still coming in. Um, so initial cert is definitely way up over goal, and goal was up, projected to be 5% over last year's total. So we're doing very well there, um, and new CFREs are, uh, are joining the fold. Um, also regarding recertification, so anybody who had their certifications coming due for renewal um, during 2004, we are very close to meeting that goal already um, with, you know, a, a month and a half left in, in 2014. Um, we're, we're very close and we expect to exceed that recertification goal as well. So um, really good news in terms of growth of the credential. Um, 2014 has a, been a good year for, for growing the CFRE. Well, terrific. Um, well, that, here at the uh, nonprofit coach, of course, we're very supportive of CFRE. We feel 
that it is an important indication of voluntary um, uh, service to the nonprofit sector uh, and philanthropy and standing for exam and holding yourself to a body of knowledge uh, that your your peers also uh, hold themselves to. And I think it uh, adds to the growing professionalism uh, of our field. Yes, it, it, that's great, and we really appreciate your support. I did also just want to put out a reminder to folks um, that, you know, if your certification is due for expiration at the end of 2014, December 2014, um, that you're going to want to get your recertification applications in by December 30th. Um, and if you have any question about when your certification expires, um, you can always go to the Go to our website, CFRE.org, um, and log in there, um, and you'll be able to check your expiration date, update any of your contact information, and then complete and submit your application. Um, if anyone has questions or has trouble logging in, they can just email share, S-H-A-R-E, at CFRE.org, and we'd be happy to help anyone with, uh, with login issues. Um, That's so perfect. That, and, of course, we that, have a, yeah. a link to CFRE.org in the radio links today. So while you're over there looking at some of the other articles, you can just click on that and go directly to CFRE.org. Yeah. Um, and the only the only thing I'd want to share with your listeners today is, you know, that the CFRE continues to be out on the road at, at conferences representing the credential um, and promoting the value of certification, not just to, to fundraisers, but also to um, nonprofit managers, hiring managers, other folks in, in the philanthropic se- sector um, who really would benefit from knowing more and understanding better about CFRE certification and what it means um, in regard to a, a professional fundraiser. So let me just share with you some of the fo- some of the places where we have been out um, and representing the, the credential and, and CFRE International. Um, I last week on Friday I, I was lucky enough to attend the Maryland nonprofit um, national the Maryland chapter of the AFP National Philanthropy Day in Baltimore, um, and then our CEO Eva Aldrich um, attended the national uh, nonprofit uh, I mean excuse me. National Philanthropy Day um, here in Washington, D.C. Also, we were at the Save the Children um, conference last week in Orlando. That was a new um, venue for us to to go out and promote CFRE and certification. Um, And our certification manager, Alicia, was there attending for CFRE International. Um, And additionally, if folks are going to be attending either the Case 5 conference coming up in Chicago on December 14th through 16th, um, Eva Aldrich will be there representing CFRE, and she would love for folks to stop by and say hi and talk with her. Um, Eva also right now is actually in Europe um, at the European Fundraising Association Skillshare, and CFRE will actually have some very exciting news to announce uh, to your listeners coming out of that meeting um, the next time we join you on on nonprofit coach. So so some very exciting places um and opportunities to to talk to folks from CFRE and um learn more about the credential or ask any questions you have in person. Well that's great. Well terrific news all the way across the board. Great to have you here. We look forward to learning that exciting news coming out of Europe. Uh come back anytime you want. Obviously you're here uh, monthly, but anytime you have news, uh just uh, let our producer Diane know and she'll get you right on the next show. Uh, so, Jim okay, Hamilton from CFRE.org, uh, thank you so much uh, for uh, sharing those important updates about CFRE.org. And we're back here on uh, page one, uh, over here in page one. Could this be some competition to LinkedIn? Don't know. Uh, the uh, announcement uh, just yesterday uh, that Facebook is working on Facebook at Work. Uh, Facebook is working on extending its network beyond the social realm and into the professional world, uh, as announced in the Financial Times. The company's new enterprise-focused product will be similar in functionality to the current site with news feed groups and messaging capability. However, it will also include collaborative tools uh, such as sharing documents. Facebook at Work will be an entirely separate focus than personal accounts with no information from the user's social profile appearing on his or her professional pages and vice versa. So sort of watch this space. We'll continue to monitor this here, obviously, on the Nonprofit Coach. Uh, as you know, in the six pillars of success, 
for online nonprofit organizations, the first being uh, a well-designed website and mobile service with strong email. Uh, number two being my next guest here on the Nonprofit Coach, uh, GuideStar. Uh, and number three being LinkedIn. So will this be uh, competition to the third pillar of success? Let's watch and see. Uh, and with that, it's uh, my pleasure to welcome back here uh, to the Nonprofit Coach, representing the second pillar of success, uh, GuideStar. Lindsay Nichols, welcome back with the GuideStar Minute. Thank you so much, Ted, and you know, thank you so much for including GuideStar as one of your strategies, and that's actually what I wanted to talk about today. Um, I think you and, and so many charities right now are focused on Giving Tuesday, which is Tuesday, December 2nd. It's the Tuesday after Thanksgiving, and it really is kind of the, the global day dedicated to giving back. And so what we're doing is, is trying to talk to as many nonprofits as we can that this is your opportunity to fundraise effectively, and the GuideStar Exchange, which is the strategy that you always talk about, Ted, um, it's a free program that we uh, have for nonprofits to better tell their story. Uh, to donors and funders, we have about 7 million annual visitors to GuideStar.org every year, and they are looking at nonprofit pages. They're looking at the actual nonprofits. So the exchange, the GuideStar Exchange, is really our program to let nonprofits tell their story give us more information, you know, give us photos, tell us what you're doing and how you're doing. Um, that is going to be a great tool when it comes to Giving Tuesday. And um, we actually power Amazon Smile. So that's what I wanted to talk about today. Um, it's a new program from Amazon that allows um, when customers shop at smile.amazon.com, Amazon donates a portion of that purchase price to eligible charities. So if your nonprofit is on GuideStar, you can take advantage of that. And the GuideStar Exchange, which is at guidestar.org slash exchange, allows you to make sure that information is accurate, that you have the right um, you know, address, that so you can actually get checks from Amazon. And, of course, Amazon is just you know, huge and has so many, so many uh, customers and visitors. So it's a really great opportunity to tie all this together, to use Giving Tuesday as your fundraising push, to make sure your information is accurate on GuideStar so that you can take advantage of Amazon, and really to make sure that people and your donors and supporters are seeing the full picture of your nonprofit um, through the GuideStar Exchange, which is completely free. You just have to you know, register with GuideStar, um, claim your nonprofit's report, and then you're off to the races. And we are you know, happy to assist you in that. So um, I'm, I'm really excited about Giving, Giving Tuesday. It's a really big day for philanthropy. So last year went gangbusters, so we're, we're hopeful that this year will be even better. Well, as, as you just pointed out, we are huge supporters of uh, Giving Tuesday here on the Nonprofit Coach. As a matter of fact, I'll take this opportunity to plug that show. Tuesday, December 2nd, we will have Ken Berger uh, from uh, uh, Net Charity Navigator as our guest here on the Nonprofit Coach. Obviously, an, an important tie-in uh, to Giving Tuesday. Uh, thrilled to have you bring the updates uh, uh, about uh, the importance of all of our listeners updating their GuideStar uh, Exchange profile. Um, also, I uh, love the fact that you're making note. Uh, I'm a big a fan of Amazon Smile. I think it's a it's a very smart tie-in that you folks have, uh, particularly with uh, Black Friday coming up. It's a great opportunity to support charities and shop at the same time uh, with uh, uh, Cyber Monday. Uh, and I I think you know what we what we should. Uh, uh, be declaring is uh, you know up to date Monday. You have to be up to date uh, by by uh, December first, uh, so that you're prepared for Giving Tuesday. So uh, here on the nonprofit coach on GuideStar, we're we're saying that uh, Monday, December first is up to date Monday. Make sure that you're up to date um, because that is going to position you well. Uh, for Giving Tuesday, which is uh, Tuesday, December 2nd. So nice tie-in all the way around. Great work over at GuideStar, and uh, uh, we very you. much appreciate uh, all that you're doing and the fact that you bring us such amazing updates on a monthly basis. Uh, so uh, we thank you very much, Lindsay Nichols, and we are looking forward you. to uh, your update next month. Can't wait. Thank you so much, and happy Giving Tuesday. <laughs> Happy Giving Tuesday. Take care. Uh, we are back here wrapping up on uh, page uh, one news. Um, just a, a, a quick 
uh, announcement on Amazon Smile. Uh, we do think that's a very important and nice tie-in uh, to Amazon. Lots of shopping happens. If you shop, uh, make sure that you are up to date on uh, on GuideStar uh, so that you immediately can benefit from that. You can learn more about that program at smile.amazon.com. And of course, over in the radio links today, we have a direct link to guidestar.org as always. Um, so with that, um, we are going to head on over to page two. Over here on page two, we have a very special guest. Linda Lysakowski is back with us, uh, and uh, she is going to actually do the formal introduction of our page two expert today. Welcome back, Linda. Thanks so much, Ted. You know, I was intrigued by your talking about up-to-date Monday before Giving Tuesday because I think it's so important for charities and nonprofits to really be prepared, and that's what our guest today is going to talk about is things that you do to get prepared to do fundraising. Um, and as my in my role with Charity Channel Press and recently for the Genius Press, I think it's so exciting for me to get to work with all these wonderful authors, and I'm really delighted to talk to you today about Meredith Hanks, who's uh, written a number of books on prospect researching. In fact, I believe she's written more books on the topic than any other author has written, so I think you're in for a real treat hearing from Meredith today because prospect research, I have to tell you in my years in fundraising, Ted, the one thing I hated doing is the research, and it is so wonderful to talk to people who really enjoy doing the prospect research. And without that prospect research, fundraisers really would be struggling to, to adequately be prepared to go out on calls and talk to donors. So I think the prospect research is a huge, huge area that people like Meredith have done so much to advance the, the whole field of prospect research. So I think you're going to be really delighted to hear from her today. Well, I, I uh, really appreciate you uh, giving her the opportunity to write this fantastic book that is going to be our focus today, Fundraising Research Made Easy, a Practical Guide uh, for Fundraisers. What a, a perfect topic, as you said, uh, very timely at this time of year to be prepared. Uh, Dr. Meredith Hanks is currently the Director of Prospect Research and Management at Western Illinois University. Uh, and Linda, stay right here so you can uh, greet her yourself. Uh, welcome here to the nonprofit coach, Meredith Hanks. Thank you. It's fun to be here. And Hi, Linda's Meredith. Here with Hi, us. Linda. <laughs> so I would make it a little bit of home week here, uh, getting ready for the holidays, uh, having a little bit of a home spirit here. Uh, so, Linda, thank you so much for that great introduction. That's uh, Linda Lysakowski, uh, who is uh, uh, with uh, Charity Channel Press and brings us so many uh, important authors here. Uh, so, Meredith, um, getting into this uh, terrific book, uh, that, uh, that that you have written. I want to actually start off where you started off because I'm so impressed uh, with the fact that um, when you when you start with uh, prospect research, I'm not sure that most fundraisers start exactly where they should, and you are doing that in your book, which is so impressive, and that is ethics. Um, taking a look at the ethical implications of the research that you do, because I think for a lot of fundraisers, where they start is where's the money. Uh, not the ethical considerations of the doing the research. So why don't we start there? Okay. Um, you know, it really is important to remember that because we're dealing with a lot of very personal, private information, right? It's public. It's publicly available, but people consider it information about them um, and consider it to be their private information about their giving and their interests. Um, so it's really important to remember that, we are guided by a lot of um, ethical principles. APRA, the Prospect Researchers Association, has an ethical standards. We use um, AFPs the, and Advancement Services Professionals, AASP. They all have guiding ethical principles that, that form the basis of what we do. And we, what is important to remember, um, you know, just looking at it as a practical tip, is there information you wouldn't want people to know about your personal life? If you don't want that information stored about you, then don't store it about other people. 
Um, you know, so if you go with it from that perspective and you think about the fact that your goal in prospect research is to provide information to build the relationship between the donor or prospective donor and your organization, and you only include information that is pertinent to that relationship, um, it makes it a lot easier to understand. Well, and I think in doing that, um, what, what I wanted to uh, uh, focus on is looking at those actual codes because we have listeners today that may either not be aware of them or may not be members of those particular organizations. And, and I think part of what needs to be focused on um, is that which is private and that which is sensitive um, because you're, you're pointing out that you know, most of the information that's probably going to be available is public. But there's, there's a, a whole different aspect to that when you pull it together into one report that creates a, a very sensitive picture of the prospect. It absolutely does. Um, so it's, it's important to remember that once you pull that information together into a profile or store it in your database, that becomes confidential information that should only be shared you know, with the people at your organization who are directly involved with that prospect and need to know that information. Um, even though it is public, anyone can go onto the web and find a lot of this information if they so chose. Um, but it's important to remember to be respectful of your donors and your prospects and to keep that information confidential um, and use it only for the purposes that that you're collecting it for. And what about um, utilization of, of that? Um, I think that often security of that information and who has access to it um, is not necessarily well, – I'll ask you, is that an ethical issue or is this – um, a, a matter of sort of IT technology and protocols being followed? Um, probably both. Uh, it's, a, it's a good idea to have confidentiality statements and to remind people that the information they are viewing, that they have a right to view and a need to view in their job is, um, is confidential information and they aren't to share it with people outside of that. But then also making sure that your database is secure and that information you're transmitting via email or having available for people to look at in a dashboard maybe is not available to people who shouldn't have it. So I think it's both. And what about uh, the use of volunteers and the prospects um, uh, in moves management or however you are you're working with your prospects? Um, what about need to know and, and access to that information? Um, how is that decision best made um, and how is that information transmitted? A lot with volunteers will depend on the characteristics of your organization and what you're having those volunteers do for you. Uh, they probably do not need to see all of the information that you have about prospects, um, but they will need some. And so remembering to have training with them on the fact that, yes, this is, this is confidential information to use in the context of this relationship only. Um, and just reminders of that. Um, I think is a good place to start. In some cases, maybe organizations will decide their volunteers don't need access to any of that information. They just need to know, okay, you're going to talk to John Smith and you're going to ask him to give $250 to this project. And they don't need to know that background information. So a lot of it comes down to the actual culture of your organization as well. But all the, are there best practices? Because I absolutely agree with you on the need to know and the appropriateness. But, but I think for a lot of nonprofits, uh, research is research, information is information, and it's sort of all of the above, um, as opposed to sort of slicing and dicing it based on professional best practices of access. Um, there, there are, I would guess, but ag again, I think it. I would say that it's going to come down to creating the best practices for your, not necessarily your organization, but maybe your field. Um, you know, so maybe in higher education we have a set of best practices around what is shared with volunteers that is different from what they would have in healthcare, or different from what they would have in an arts organization, just because of the nature of the information we have and the laws that are governing sharing right. that information. Can you can you sort of characterize maybe even if you just use those three buckets, um, just to give our listeners. Uh, 
a peek into what you think the differences might be. So if it's higher ed versus healthcare versus arts organization, what might be the difference um, for utilization of information with volunteers? I would think um, we do not, and I'm in higher ed, do not tend to share a lot of information with our volunteers um, for fundraising purposes. We don't have a group going out there doing that specifically. Um, but there's a lot of information that's governed by FERPA regulations. Um, and so we have to be careful about what information, even regarding major, you know, what groups of, what college students graduated from could be protected information. And so that brings a whole other um, nuance to the situation that we may not have to think about. With regard to healthcare, they're looking at HIPAA um, and what what information can be shared among people. Um, you know, it really just, I don't know. <laughs> Well, I think, I, but I, I hear you sort of struggling with the advice. But it, it sounds to me that that, um, and, and I think this is this would be news for most of our our listeners um, is that research is actually internal for professional use, um, and it needs to to be translated and digested before shared with volunteers, as opposed to handing a prospect research uh, profile to your volunteer. Um, before making the solicitation, it's, it's sounding to me that that best practice would not be handing over the internal prospect research report. Right. I that's an excellent way to put it. That you know your researcher or the people in your organization who are doing research on a prospect would gather all of that information and have all of that research available to them. But then what they give to the volunteer would depend on who that volunteer is and what their job is. You know, if it's a board member who just needs to see something that's happening for an event, you would have a profile that just gives you, you know, an index card of these are the important things that you need to know about this relationship with this person. Or, you know, if it, if they are going to go on a solicitation, you can talk about this is what their past giving to our organization has been and this is where we're hoping to go in the future. And just giving them the summary that's important to how they fit into the picture of the solicitation of that prospect rather than giving them all 20 pages of the wealth ratings and the all of their real estate and all of their interests and everything like that. I, I think this is such an, a, an important topic um, that you're raising today because I think for the average fundraiser um, that is struggling to meet budgets and to grow their, their donor base, um, it, research is research, more is always better, um, and getting that in the hands of the person who's going to help with solicitation is more commonplace than you're suggesting that it actually should be. So you're pointing to really the the need for professional um, uh, insight and ability to analyze the data in front of you and to pre prepare that appropriately for volunteers. So there, there's this, what you're painting, if I'm, if I'm correct here, is sort of a, a translation requirement on the part of the, the, the development professional, whoever that may be, um, in judiciously sharing information and using it with volunteers as opposed to more research is, is better. Yes. That's an excellent way to summarize. Well, yeah, I, I, I do find that to be, I think, newsworthy here on, on the, the nonprofit coach coming out of your book is because I don't think that enough thought is given uh, to the ethics, to the appropriateness of sharing that information. Uh, I think all too often the, the full report is shared you know, almost out of pride, like, okay, well, look at how much we know about this prospect. How could you possibly fail to help us raise money? And not, not taking into account how incredibly uncomfortable uh, and inappropriate that would be. Right. And, it, you know, it could be uncomfortable for both the volunteer and the donor, especially if they're people who know each other. Um, right. You know, if you have one of your friends going back from, you know, 20 or 30 years who's sitting down with you and you're thinking, okay, they all of a sudden know a lot about every aspect of my life that I didn't share with them. That may make that 
relationship uncomfortable, and then that could damage the relationship that they have with your organization as well. Well, not to mention that they then need to be asking themselves, well, what do they have on me? Right. Uh, and, who, and who are they Who are they sharing that with me? Because I'm a volunteer and I'm a donor, uh, so who has access? So walk us through how that should be thought through within the organization. I mean, clearly you're talking about policies. Clearly you're talking about uh, preparing ahead of time to have answers to these questions. Um, it's not the sort of thing that you should be in the middle of a campaign doing research and then making up the protocols as you go along. It's really not ideal to make up protocols as you go along, I find. Um, you know, sometimes you have to because you encounter a situation that's new and that's when you need to address it and figure out a solution to it. But in general, you should, as an organization, sit down, look at the ethical principles, ethical standards that are guiding the fundraising practice, um, the ones that you use, the Donor Bill of Rights, and looking at the guidelines from AFP and all of those other ones, um, and say, okay, what does this mean for us? And with the way that we use volunteers or are planning to use volunteers in our campaign, what do we need to address together and come to a, con a complete understanding of together so we're all working under the same definition of this is what it means to be a volunteer fundraiser for this organization, and this is what I will do, this is what I won't do. This is, you know, this is not part of, maybe it means saying, I don't need to know how much your, you know, total assets are in order to successfully work with the development professional to build this relationship and ask you for a gift. I know how I can know how much of a gift we're planning to ask you for, but maybe I don't need to know anything more about your financial situation because as a volunteer that I'm not the one creating that strategy. I'm just helping build the relationship. Great, and I think um, it, it's the brilliance behind your book is, is the focus on being a practical guide for fundraisers. And I think, you know, there, there almost needs to be sort of that, that footnote to say, you know, this book is for you to prepare you and to prepare your organization. But the, the, the flip side of it is, you know, in, in Chapter 5 where you're sharing how to build a profile, that, that is for internal use. Yes. Um, this book really was, um, it came out of people talking to both Kara and I saying, you know, I don't want to do what you do. I'm a fundraiser. I don't have time to be a researcher. But it would be helpful if I knew what you do or if I knew how to ask for information. Or I can't afford to have a person like you in my organization, so what can I do to benefit from this? You know, that's really where we came from um, when we wrote this book. And so I think we're we're looking at it from that perspective of here's what you need to know to fit research in, to benefit from it internally and to figure out how to, you know, add add a bit of that to the life the very, very busy lives that you're already leading. Um, well and, I, and I love that aspect and, and, and that aspect of this book is so important to uh, to our listeners here on the Nonprofit Coach because um, that is the, the you know, part of the focus of the show is to bring that kind of expertise that may, be, may seem out of reach uh, for a lot of organizations to make it very practical and, and put it in their hands. Um, so we're going to take a, a very quick break, uh, uh, Meredith, and then we're going to be back. And when, when we come back, I really want you to delve in more into those sort of hidden secrets of how to make it happen when you can't afford uh, to either have on staff or to hire an outside uh, researcher. What is possible uh, for smaller organizations? And we'll be right back after this break. When you have a great idea and need to work with others to bring it to life, how do you do it? Sometimes it's tough because the people you work with are in different places, with different schedules, using different devices. Google Apps lets you bring ideas to life with others. Here's how. Start with email that offers more. 
Gmail does more than send and receive emails. It connects people and lets you chat instantly while viewing a snapshot of your team's relevant activities and access to everything they shared with you. With Google Docs, there's only one version for everyone to work on. Share easily with the right people without email attachments or compatibility hassles. And work together on the same docs at the same time in a way that simply makes sense. Edit and interact easily with integrated social commenting. Google Calendar makes it easy to share schedules and find times to meet and schedule or update meetings with a few clicks. Everyone can't be in the same place at the same time, but Google Apps lets you work together from any place. With multi-way video chat, you'll feel like you're all in the same room. While screen sharing and integration with Google Docs lets you work with more people from anywhere, on any device, even on your mobile phone or tablet. Work with any team at any time, from any place, on any device. Google Apps. Work in the future, today. To learn more, go to google.com slash apps. And just a programming note here uh, on the Nonprofit Coach. Um, next week will be uh, a week to catch up on some of our podcasts. I will actually be at the uh, AFP Toronto Congress. Uh, I will be presenting two presentations if you'd like to come see me. Uh, the first will be Fundraising in the United States, How Your Canadian Organization Can Get Started. Uh, and the second uh, presentation uh, is on websites, the good, the bad, and the ugly, live website review, uh, where I will be providing uh, a private consultation um, within the, uh, uh, the uh, session for websites represented in the audience. So if you want your website reviewed uh, for free, uh, come to uh, the Toronto Congress uh, to my session on November 25th at 11.30 at the Convention Center. Um, and then uh, we start winding down for the holiday season. Uh, hard to believe, but on December 2nd, uh, as I mentioned earlier on this show, Ken Berger uh, from uh, Charity Navigator will be our guest uh, on December 2nd on Giving Tuesday. So we're thrilled to have him with us. And then we wrap up the 2014 uh, year of the Nonprofit Coach uh, with, of course, none other than Kay Sprinkle Grace, who always uh, wraps us up for the holidays and giving you her best tips, which are always uh, in the top 10 shows every year. Uh, so do not miss the opportunity to learn from Kay Sprinkle Grace on December 9th at 9, at, uh, 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 noon Eastern. Uh, and then we will be on uh, winter hiatus uh, for a few weeks, uh, coming back in January live here on the nonprofit coach. Remember, our podcasts and archives are always available 24 hours a day at tedhart.com. Click on radio links. If you're listening live today, the phone lines are open. Call in and ask a question by dialing 347 324 3080. Now, back to the nonprofit coach with Ted Hart. And we're back here uh, live with Dr. Meredith Hanks, who is the Director of Prospect Research and Management at Western Illinois University. Uh, she has uh, written a terrific book on Charity Channel Press, Fundraising Research Made Easy, a Practical Guide uh, for Fundraisers. Welcome back uh, here, Meredith. So uh, take us through um, the next uh, step of uh, information for organizations from your book on how they can actually do prospect research themselves. Okay. Um, I think we should start from the time management and how to fit a little bit of research in um, would be a good place. One recommendation, this is one of my favorite sections to write in this book, actually, um, You know, looking at how a busy nonprofit person, if they're the executive director and the only person doing fundraising, or whether there's a bunch of fundraisers, but they're still... Um, out of the office most of the time doing visits, how they can really benefit from that. Um, so the recommendation is to try to stay 
two weeks or at least one week ahead of your visits when you make a research schedule. Um, you know, so in week one of the month, you would research the six prospects, say, that you're going to be visiting in week three. The next week, you'd research the six prospects you'll visit in week four. So you're always staying ahead of that. Um, maybe you find out that Tuesday afternoons are a difficult time to get appointments with people pretty consistently. So just schedule that on your calendar that this is the time I'm going to spend doing research. And then just sit down and spend maybe a half an hour per person. Um, what you'd want to do, start with what you already know. right? So pull a profile from your database of what you already know about that prospect. And then pull out a copy of your ask plan, your moves management plan, whatever your plan is for that prospect, and determine what stage of cultivation they're in. Are you, if you're still in the discovery phase, just getting to know them, that will affect what information you want to look for in that 30 minutes. You know, if you're in the middle of the two-year plan or you're just about ready to make uh, to fin finalize your pro proposal to give to them, that really changes what you need to ask for from your research time. So you want to create your meeting strategy. Spend 10 minutes, brainstorm what you need to know to make your next visit strategic. You know, this is the kind of planning you're already going to be doing anyway for those visits. And so we're not trying to, by adding research in, we're not trying to give you more work. We're just trying to help inform the strategy that you're already creating. Um, so you want to create your meeting strategy. And then in step four, you're going to actually conduct your research. You'll go online to whichever resources make sense for, for the information you need to find based on the cultivation stage. If you really need you know, you have to have stuff done quickly. You would want to try to find money in your budget for one of the prepackaged software systems where you can type in a name and an address and it will give you the information. It will give you the overall profile. And you, as you work with them, you'll learn how, how to verify that information and make sure that it's talking about the right John Smith prospect. Um, but you really want to do that. That will give you a really quick snapshot of what you're looking at. If you really don't have the finances but you have a little more time, then there are a lot of free resources available. You can find out about real estate. You can find out about interests. Employment information is available on LinkedIn. Um, you know, there's a lot of different ways to go about doing that. One thing that I am a strong advocate for is creating a Word document on your desktop where anytime you come across a resource that works for a certain type of information, you plug it in there. You know, so anytime I hear resources mentioned at conferences for things that I don't research very often, like airplanes, I don't have many prospects who own airplanes, so I don't usually have to know that. But if that information comes up in a conference, I make a note of it and I add it to that document that I have on my desktop. So if in the future it does come up, I already know where to go to find that, res that information. So you would just spend you know, about 20 minutes looking up the information to answer those questions that, you, that would guide your cultivation strategy. For, you know, If you're looking at how much to ask for, you would want to look at their philanthropy, how much they've given to other organizations. What's the largest gift they've ever given to somewhere else? Um, you can find that online through annual reports. You can find it through NOZA and GuideStar often will have... Now, um, tell, our, tell our listeners what NOZA is. Um, they primarily do listings of nonprofit donations uh, from people. So you could look somebody up and you would find out where they're giving philanthropically. Um, they are available through some of the other um, package sources or as a standalone product. Right. And they're a service of BlackBod. Um, so if you are a BlackBod customer, uh, most likely contacting your representative to ask about NOZA, N-O-Z-A, uh, or you can learn more about that at nozasearch.com. Um, <clears throat> you know, so that's really where I would start. You would want, I think it's important to have a list and an ongoing, you know, almost a living document where you're adding in all of those resources as you come across them. Mine is about 35 pages long. Um, and most of it is not stuff that I need on a regular basis, but it's nice to have there, and it's a lot easier to find it if it's all in one place than if you're going back searching through emails or trying to remember which page of your conference notes you wrote it on um, during a session. 
so that you can make the most of that 20 minutes of time that you're spending learning more about your prospect. And then to bring the research around full circle, after you have that meeting, you want to go back and look at what the research you found was and look at whether the prospect confirmed that or maybe they, you know, unconfirmed that information, you realize that it wasn't correct. Um, or you thought of more things that you need to know for next time. And make sure to add that information as well so that your profile building is really a process that continues and you learn it in bits and pieces. You don't sit down and write a 20-page prospect profile before a meeting because that's overwhelming. And you can't you don't want to get into your meeting and say, oh, I have all of this information about you, right? It's You want to be prepared so that you have that information in the back of your mind, and it can inform the discussion, but it doesn't, you know, dictate discussion. Yeah, and how, how do you actually do that? Because I, I think that that mistake is often made in terms of, you know, relying so much on the data that you're you're sort of saying the reason I'm here is because we've researched you. Um, and and that's not only bad form, but that's actually a really bad way to to solicit. Right. Um, I would say, you know, it's imp- you would want to not bring your 20 pages of notes or all of that background information. The same thing we were talking about earlier about you know giving a summary to a volunteer. It's a good exercise even if you're not sharing the information with a volunteer. Make a summary and say, okay, my point of this meeting is to ask them for $100,000. And I know that I want to ask them for $100,000 because I know that they've given you know, X, Y, and Z gifts to these other organizations at that level. Or we know that they have wealth that would indicate they could give us that gift. They, they will have to think about it, but they could do it. You know, so you don't sit down and say, I know you can give me $100,000. You would sit down and frontline fundraisers are much more finesse about asking than I do because I don't do that. But, you know, you wouldn't sit down and say, well, I've researched you and I know that you can give me $100,000, so that's what I'd like you to do. You would just sit down and say, you know, this is the gift we've been thinking about. This is the project that we want to do that we want you to be on board with. And this is the amount we'd like you to consider. And you can do that in a tactful way. And I think frontline fundraisers are much more adept at that tactful way to do that. You're just using this to inform what you're going to ask for. Yeah, and I, I think I think it is that tact, but it's also being a professional. And as you said, you know, you're not bringing your research. This is not a research project. Um, this is an individual. You know information that may be important. Uh, but actually listening to the prospect and learning what they would like to accomplish with their philanthropy is far more important. Um, I think that where where research comes in and where it's often missed um, is it's really about helping set um, your own expectations on what is possible, but just because there is the capacity to make that kind of gift does not mean that the donor will make it to your organization. That's really where the cultivation process comes in and how personally connected you as a professional can make that donor feel to the project because, after all, they don't owe you the money. Absolutely. It's it's really a tool to inform and give you a broader perspective for the conversation. It's not in place of that conversation. Exactly. It, it, it sort of informs it and, and, and carries it, it forward. Um, so we do have a, an email a question from Jesse, and she's uh, asking, once I have uh, my prospect uh, research completed, um, where do I go from there? So I, I think it's sort of, Jesse, where we've been leading this discussion, but maybe, Meredith, you can kind of wrap that a little bit tighter for us. Okay. Um, once you have that information, you want to have it stored in a place where you can find it. Um, <laughs> that's really important. If you can get it into your database rather than a file cabinet, that's really going to help you inform your strategy further. And you want to take that information and analyze it, look at what's important as far as that relationship goes. And as you actually interact with the prospects and interact with those donors, you want to go back and look at that research that you found 
and figure out whether it makes sense um, and figure out what other questions either the research um, raises that you need to answer or that the prospect, your interactions with the prospect, what other questions those are. Because I don't think your research is ever actually finished. Um, so I don't, I don't want to say when your research is done, then go meet with the prospect. You want to say when you have gotten the research that you need for this next visit, then go visit with your prospect and then come back and summarize that in your contact reports. And then the next time you're going to visit with them, look at how you, how your research played out before and what your contact reports have said and figure out where you're going next and plan that next move and that next visit and figure out what those next questions are that you need to answer. And just have it as a continual cultivation strategy and it's just one more piece to that cultivation puzzle that you're building. Yeah, and would you say that's where, um, for Jesse, maybe the missing link here is that the research is just research. It doesn't make it personal. And it's 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 bring, building more of that narrative around the research that you have in terms of what did you learn, what's not there, what what are the sort of the, the open-ended questions that you might ask that make it more of a conversation as opposed to, I guess, I, I think the, the downfall could be, you know, I'm meeting with you to complete my book report. Right. You don't want to do that. <laughs> right. You don't want to do that. You don't want to do that. Yeah, exactly. That, that would be the, the, the bad move. So um, it, it's more about creating the dialogue and having it be sort of an informed dialogue as, as opposed to a book report. Yes. Okay. Good. Well, we, we just have four minutes left. And what I'd like you uh, to do, if you would, is sort of uh, share those things that you wanted to share that I didn't ask about today, uh, and then um, end by making sure that my listeners know how to reach you. Okay. Um, you know, a couple of the important traits of someone who does research, and I think that there are things to keep in your mind, are people, you have to be curious and intuitive and analytical and creative and organized and proactive and independent. And all of those things rolled into one. And a lot of fundraisers have those same prop, those same characteristics a lot of the time. And just because you prefer being out meeting with people doesn't mean that you need to be scared of sitting in front of a computer or at the library or whatever doing that research. Um, you're just using research as another tool to develop that relationship, um, you don't have, you don't want to go into a relationship with a donor and not have any idea of what's going on. Even before a discovery call, having a few talking points, you know, do a quick Google search or DuckDuckGo, you know, go to some search engine and look at their name, see if you find something that talks about their interests, just so you have a couple talking points. And then, as that relationship evolves, you want to look at those other pieces and fit them in together so that it's a continually evolving puzzle. I would say if you don't have a full-time researcher, news alerts are really going to be your friend. Um, sign up, put in your organization name. If you have some top prospects, put in a news alert for those names um, so that you are aware and alerted every time that those things come up in the news and you can kind of just scan them really quickly. Um, you want to create a list of priority list of your prospects, what you need to know about them. If you find time, then, you know, 30 minutes here or there, pull out your list and do a little bit of digging. Um, you may want to take a week or two, do some trials, look at a few vendors and see which ones give you the results that are useful and accurate for a cost that fits your budget and, t and time, and then subscribe to those. It's often faster, therefore cheaper to go this route than to go the free route. Um, but you want to look at what, there's a lot of questions in this book about how to think about what your organization needs and that's an important thing to think to look at going forward and figuring out what you need to do as far as fitting research in to your already very busy lives but it can really do a lot to inform your strategy and make sure that you're not asking a hundred thousand dollar prospect for a ten thousand dollar gift and then leaving all of that gift on that other gift on the table because you didn't do the research to know that really they could give you that much if you presented it properly. And that's the real beauty of your book is sort of that practical approach uh, to not leaving money on the table, being smart about your process, 
Um, we've just got 90 seconds left. We need to wrap up the show. How can my uh, listeners uh, reach you? My email is ml-hanks, H-A-N-C-K-S, at wiu.edu. I'm on Twitter at mhanks. And I have a blog, Meredith's Daily Musings, at WordPress. Well, we cannot thank you enough. Brilliant show today. Very, very practical, as promised, as built. Uh, you're welcome back here on the show anytime with your practical advice. Uh, for my listeners, don't forget, next week uh, uh, we are on hiatus next week because I will be at the AFP uh, Congress uh, in Toronto, so please come join me there. Uh, and then I will be back here live uh, with Charity Navigator on Giving Tuesday, December 2nd. Uh, so that is our show. Meredith, thank you, and goodbye. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Nonprofit Coach Radio Show with Ted Hart. Tell all your friends to check out our production schedule and download our iPod and iPad-friendly podcast at tedhart.com. Thanks for listening to The Nonprofit Coach. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.